0: waited for almost an hour and a half just in this examination room uh, and scared to death that I was going to be given a death sentence and going to have to start chemo maybe even that day or the next. And he said, "I I don't know how to tell you this. Well, I'd heard doctors say that several times in the last five to seven years. Usually it was Absolutely horrible news. And so I immediately gasped and he looked up at me. He said, oh, no, Dean, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. I don't know how to tell you this, but I can't find any hint of the leukemia at all. And in my 30 years, I've never seen this happen. And if I hadn't diagnosed you myself, I would have thought you'd been misdiagnosed. Uh, The leukemia was
1: gone because of this one.
2: We had a remarkable guest on this week called Dean Hall. Dean went from working 100-hour weeks as a licensed therapist and coach to receiving a two- to six-week diagnosis to live. Our conversation with Dean documents his journey through his leukemia diagnosis, his lymphoma diagnosis, bouts of pneumonia, and viral meningitis. And to top that off, the grief of losing his first wife to brain cancer. What got him through? He credits having a purpose. That purpose, seeing his then 14-year-old daughter grow up with a father. He was committed to doing anything to fulfill that role. With Dean, we discussed the power of the cold water, his radical remission from cancer, the power of visualization, and how we can let go of overwhelming emotions. As Albert Einstein once said, there are two ways to live your life. As if nothing is a miracle, or as if everything is a miracle. Dean's approach to life very much falls in the latter camp. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as Eloise and I did, putting it together. With that, here is my conversation with Dean Hall. Set the, set the stage for the listener who you know, hasn't heard of Dean Hall yet. Could you, could you sort of frame the conversation in a way of, where were you at in your life when you got your first diagnosis?
0: Well, when I got my first diagnosis, it, it, my wife was still alive. Um, my daughter was 14. It was four days before Christmas. And uh, I'd been working round the clock, as I pretty much have my whole life. Uh, there is one benefit to being very ADHD. you has got a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm usually. And I had a really good friend who uh, was a doctor, and we'd worked together for years. And he said, Dean, your blood test came back bad. Um, you've got leukemia, and you have features of both chronic and acute. We've never seen anything like that. I'm on the KU Board of Medicine. I've made some calls out to some world-best oncologists. They'd never seen anything like it. Uh, One of them that I asked, he's like, if this doesn't change, you got about two to six weeks to live. And within about two weeks, it went, thankfully, from acute leukemia to chronic, which uh, meant that I knew I had quite a bit of time. But by about mid-September, I turned around again and started getting well and really making a very determined effort to change all of my lifestyles. At that point, I cleaned up all my eating. I made sure I slept eight to nine hours a night and I'm really ADHD. And so I'd never really slept my entire life. I thought I was kind of superhuman. If I got four hours, I'm good.
2: But how did you you mentally get to a point where I'm ready to tackle this and then get to a point where it makes sense to swim 184 miles over 22 days in fordable
0: water? uh, Everything that we had worked so hard for, you know, paying our dues, so to speak, was paying off. And then in August of 2010, without warning, my wife's whole right side of her face fell. And we thought that was, of course, odd. So we took her to the hospital. They thought she had something called Meniere's disease, and they said, don't worry about it too much. But then she started to lose her power of speech, and her whole right side started to go. So we got her back in, and uh, lo and behold, she had one of the largest brain tumors they'd ever seen. It was back down behind her brain stem with all sorts of fingers that went out in through her brain, and it was inoperable. And 52 days later, she was dead 15 days before our 30th anniversary. And everything I'd been working for for 20 years was finally paying off. And when she died, I realized it really wasn't even for me. It was for her. I wanted her to be proud of me. I wanted her to have a good life. Because she didn't grow up with much, you know, just in this tiny little town. And I wanted her to have some of the adventures that I would gotten to have, you know, going over to Europe and and seeing sights around the world. And then my parents had, you know, offered me many other wonderful adventures. And I wanted these things for her. And just as we were at the point where we could pretty much do whatever we wanted, she died. And that was so devastating that uh, I just, you know, and I'd studied a lot about grief, was considered a grief expert in the Midwest, had written many articles, done some retreats and seminars on grief. And when I was grieving, I realized I, you know, the only knowledge I had was book knowledge. Uh, It was so much worse than I ever imagined and it just decimated me i i don't remember ever having really cried in my life and and i'd had some tough times but i i'm i'm not i'm not stoic or uh disconnected from my emotions but i can take a step back pretty easily and i couldn't even talk about the weather without crying i was crying all the time and at this point my speaking career had taken off I had to cancel everything because I couldn't even introduce myself without crying. It was that bad. I just felt devastated because I'd grown up here in Portland, Oregon, the son of two mountain climbers and had gone back to play football in Kansas and met this cute little Kansas farm girl and put myself virtually in exile for love because, uh, The area I grew up in is very mountainous, um, uh, very wild and free, lots of rivers, lots of lakes. And Kansas is nothing but flat wheat. And so for me, it was like a desert, but I was so in love with this girl that it was worth it. And it was still worth it 30 years later. But then when she was gone, I felt so cheated. I thought I've given my whole adult life for her. And now when it's finally paying off, she's gone. And so I was just angry and hurt and lost. And one year later, I the leukemia came back with a vengeance. And this time it brought with it lymphoma. Uh, I had over 60, 70 lymph nodes that swelled up. Um, three of the biggest, though, were two were right under my jawline on either side. It looked like this huge chipmunk. It was Really awkward, and then I had what my oncologist lovingly called my hockey puck um under my right arm. It was the size and shape almost exactly of a hockey puck, so i couldn't I couldn't lower my right arm uh The other thing that happened was I almost died of viral meningitis um and that's a long story in and of itself, but that was another time I woke up, and the doctor's like, man. You almost didn't make it we had to call your family uh if you hadn't woken up in the next couple hours uh, we were gonna pretty much just say you're done and um but uh i woke up um but in the time that i was out i was out for almost 40 hours uh and i had been s- such a high fever for six days i'd lost 60 pounds. And when I looked in the mirror, my fever had been so high, I'd broken out in lesions. So I had scabs all over my body and I'd lost 60 pounds. So I'd gone from 220 to 160 and I get out of bed and I'm extremely dizzy because the meninges, viral meningitis is when a virus gets in the meninges meninges are that kind of padding coating around the brain, and it had swollen up, so it had created pressure on my brain. So I had a severe headache, was really dizzy, and couldn't read. I I it was so swollen, my brain wasn't working right. So three years went on like this, where I was just doing nothing, and just living off of my four hundred one k. That left pretty quickly because i paid had to pay mostly because of this viral meningitis situation i had over three hundred thousand dollars out of pocket medical bills um, that my insurance wouldn't pay for and so i had to sell my house back in kansas uh get liquidate a lot of my savings and investments uh, pay that off and then all told, it was about five hundred thousand dollars out of pocket and so now i was broke too and uh i woke up one day in 2000 october or august of 2013 and i walked into the bathroom and i'd made a habit of never looking at myself um because i didn't recognize myself uh you could see every rib you could see my uh pelvic bones uh i mean i literally uh looked like i'd stepped out of auschwitz i uh, i was that skeletal and i made the mistake of looking up and i caught my eyes i caught my gaze in the mirror and that man had real saggy eyes and they were red rimmed and he just looked so sad uh, it couldn't be me. I'd never been that sad. And I realized, you know what? If I let the leukemia take me, no one will ever know. And I've had a good run. I've written a book. I've done. I've accomplished just about everything I'd wanted to in life. I'd been really in love and had a good marriage. I'd had a wonderful daughter. And as soon as I said that, I'm like, no, I didn't have a wonderful daughter. She was still here. And now by this time she's 21 and what a selfish thought it would be to entertain me just letting myself slip away from this life and let her be an orphan at 21. That, that would be ridiculous. And so I knew that I had to once again, find a way to fight my way back for her. And I'd had several Uh, clients come back from terrible, persistent, lifelong anxiety or depression, even suicidal ideation, uh, by using Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And I'd read it several times, was very familiar with Viktor Frankl. And just that day, when I looked at that awful skeleton in the mirror, I said, you look like you're from effing Auschwitz. And it just made me chuckle because Viktor Frankl actually had been in Auschwitz. And so I thought, you know, you're feeling way too sorry for yourself. You know, you're comparing yourself to a man that actually had to live through such a traumatic event. And his whole uh, emphasis and book and, and school of thought was that purpose is paramount if you have a purpose and the more passionately you are tied to a purpose that is proportionate to your ability to survive difficult times and so i knew that i had to find a purpose
2: so you've had this crossroads of you can sort of just accept your fate or you can Choose to tackle it right. and do something um, worthwhile and having that purpose, so how did you go about fostering that purpose How did you pick the right thing what what, what was that
0: well, around two thousand, the research came out that the brain by its very nature can't ignore a question. You ask a question, your brain will continue to work on it until it answers it. Everybody knows this for trivia or a forgotten name. You know, you'll you'll not be able to remember somebody's name and an hour or two later you'll be uh talking to someone else or maybe brushing your teeth that night and all of a sudden bing there it is. What a lot of people don't know is you can use that same mechanism for the largest, deepest, most important questions in your life. And if you really do the math, I mean, I don't know how far you want to dive into this, but One of the things I had learned way before all of my troubles is that I have to be very, very diligent and very clear on what I'm asking myself all day long. If the brain has to answer every question, we better be really good at asking good questions because if you do the math, your life is as happy and healthy as your questions are. So I decided to, several times a day, and then during meditation, just really become very heart-centered, almost prayerful, if you will, and with my whole heart say, what am I supposed to do? What would be the best way to spend my life now? And I just concentrate on it with all my might and then let it go. I'd spend about two or three minutes, about five times a day doing that. And then I'd usually meditate to start the day and to end the day. Uh, especially to end the day, I'd spend an hour or more. And during that time, I just repetitively, almost like uh Tibetan mantra, I'd, I'd say it over and over again. What is my purpose? What would be the best way to spend my life? And I thought the longest before that, that I'd ever had to wait was about four or five days. And about four or five weeks later, I was still getting nothing. And one day I got really frustrated. And I thought, you know what? Um, If I'm just waiting for God or the universe to answer me, I've been living here for six months and I haven't unpacked anything. My, My duplex looked like Uh, some kind of frat house that 20-year-olds lived in. I hadn't even put a bed together. I was living, I was, I hate to admit it, but as a 50-year-old sick man, I was just laying on a mattress on the floor. I hadn't even unpacked my boxes. So I thought, you know what? Maybe you could be a responsible adult and put a bed together and unpack the boxes. And so I started unpacking. And one of the first boxes I opened My mother had taken some of my childhood things that she wanted me to have and wanted to get out of her house. And one of them was a journal I'd been forced to keep by my teacher when I was 11 years old. And so I thought, well, let's see what the 11-year-old dean had to say. And so I opened it up and it said, when I get old, first page, when I get old, I gotta climb Mount Everest, swim the English Channel. And as soon as I saw that, it was literally been like an electric shock just went right through me. And I remembered the boy that I used to be before I went to Kansas and tried to be so responsible and tried to create wealth and all these other things. All I'd ever wanted to be was a sponsored adventurer and a mountain climber and climb all the best mountains in the world and do all sorts of wonderful things. I'd forgotten. That was my dream. And so immediately, I started running through it, and I realized I couldn't climb Everest because, number one, I didn't have the money. Number two, I didn't think my blood counts and my immune system would be able to handle elevation, but I could swim the channel. And so I Googled active cancer patient, first active cancer patient to swim the English channel. There was nothing. And so that's at first what I decided to do.
2: It's amazing how if you can reconnect with the child in you, the child knows what you sort of meant to do, what you should be doing with your life, and actually what's in, intuitive to you as opposed to what's given to you by society and as like a role to fill. Right. Um, I think uh, everyone intuitively knows that though, but I think it's quite hard to sort of shun the, Societal pressures of you should go down this way. You should be an accountant. You should do this. And actually, what you really want to do was sort of staring you in the face all along. I know from my own journey, I can definitely resonate with that kind of uh, you know what were you what were you dreaming about when you are a kid and why have you forgotten about it? And I love the exercise of looking back over old notebooks of like what were your goals at this age and would that person be proud of you at this age? And that's a whole uh, lovely exercise. So with your You've gotten your head to a point where, okay, my purpose is clear. I want to be the first man to swim the English Channel. How do you then, how does it then become a sort of a a journey closer to home? And how does that whole, whole, your whole swim start?
0: Yeah, I decided the channel, you know, is depending on the tides and how well you hit them, you know, it can be right around 20 to 22 miles. And so I decided I'm going to get in the pool, and I knew I couldn't do because I was so sick. And I'd been a triathlete in the 80s and 90s, so I had done thousands of miles of laps in the pool. And so I was very familiar with that. Uh, I, I at first thought, well, I'll do 22 laps. And I'm like, I'm not in a position to do 22 laps. But I could do 22 lengths, which would be 11 laps and so that was my goal and so i called up my doctor this aaron again and i says hey i got a great idea he's like what's that i said i'm going to become the first person to swim the entire length or a, the english channel as an active cancer patient he's like what he's like dean aren't you gonna have to train for that i said yeah i'm going to the pool today and he's like dean you just had viral meningitis uh and it almost killed you uh Getting in a swimming a public swimming pool with your immune system, you're taking as great a chance for it to kill you. And I said, "What do you want me to do? Die on a couch watching TV? I'm not. I'm not going to go out that way." And he's like, "Well, at least do this. It's going to make you look like a total idiot, but wear a nose plug because the water will go up your nose. There's a very semi-permeable membrane between your." sinus cavity in your, and your brain, your brain can't handle it. So at least promise me you're wearing nose plug. I'm like, I can do that. And so I did. And, uh, I got in the pool and it felt like old times kicked off the wall and it felt like myself again. It's the first time in three years. I felt like myself, but <laughs> I was so sick. Usually I do 11 laps in about nine or 10 minutes and it took me over an hour uh, because I would just do one length and hang on the wall and breathe really hard. And then, but I, I wasn't going to give up, got it done, walked out feeling like a million bucks. And every day I just added one more lap and by Christmas, all my numbers are going in the right direction. My head's starting to clear I'm starting to build muscle again. A lot of my lymph nodes are going down because the lymph system only works if you move. And I was doing a lot of movement. And so the good news was it was decreasing the size and expunging all the toxins from my lymph nodes. The bad news is I knew that within 30 minutes to an hour after I swam, all those toxins would register in my system and I would have pretty intense flu-like symptoms for the next three to five hours so that was the hard part knowing that even a few laps i'm gonna get really sick but i felt like you know it's got to come out anyway
1: how did the central governor
2: the voice telling you to stop must have been pretty loud during this training how did you overcome that how do you how do you not I to I
0: credit my parents. Um, I, they were both adventurers. My dad ran most of the world's marathons. He ran the London marathon back in the early eighties or maybe it was 79. Uh, my mom was a runner. My mom was one of the only mountain climbers in our state in the fifties when women just didn't do that kind of thing. Uh, and I climbed, uh, I climbed my first mountain when I was seven, and then I climbed the tallest mountain in Oregon when I was nine. And, you know, when you're nine years old and climbing a, an alpine mountain like we have here in the Cascades, usually start at ten thirty or 11 so that you can get to the summit early morning before all the ice and snow is melting so that the conditions are safer. And so I'm cold. I'm hiking and climbing through the night. I'm nine years old and I'm tired. And my dad would always say, you tired? I'd say, yeah, yeah, good. Helps you know you're alive. Keep going. (laughs) And so I I got this endurance (laughs) training and they really unknowingly, I think, helped me to develop this very stubborn iron will mindset, build that muscle at a very early age. And so for me, it wasn't uh, unnatural or unusual to bear down and just watch my body do it because I'd been doing it since I was a child.
1: Wow. I
2: mean, so the, the the strength was in the head, not, I mean, obviously not your physical body. You had at this time two bouts of different forms of cancer, right? So that just speaks to the power of mental resilience, especially formed at an early age. I think early exposure to whether it be climbing or cross country running in my case, or, um, whatever it is, I think early exposure to things that can help you push yourself, and get okay with discomfort i do think stay with you for longer through your life not just in childhood if you've had early exposure to that stuff um and it seems like it's in your blood as well dean i mean your parents are like wonderful uh adventurers in their own right so that does yeah. explain a lot how you were climbing mountains at the age of nine um, right, right, the you get to the swim and you start the swim how mentally how do you cope because you're physically you can't be in a good place but mentally it sounds like you're pretty strong-willed and ready to give it your best effort did you i mean what did you think going in did you completely optimistic this would be fine or where was your head at at the start of the swim
0: i um i didn't know that uh i'd lived through it i had visualized myself for a year Uh, getting to the end and being thrilled, but I'd also visualize the possibility of maybe one of my shoulders popping out and me just having to swim the rest of it one-armed. But I was determined that come hell or high water, I was going to swim this thing. Even if I just had to float and let the curtain drag me, I was not going to stop. And then as a spiritual discipline, and I didn't tell anyone this, one of the things I just hate, Ben, is I'll watch these documentaries on ultra-endurance athletes, and they'll complain the whole time. Or they'll cry and scream because they're sad, because they're so tired, or they're hurting. And I'm like, that's dramatic. You signed up for it. Nobody's making you do this. So as a spiritual discipline, I promised myself no matter how bad it got, I would not complain one time. And thankfully, I was able to accomplish that. Of course, I didn't tell anyone, but it shocked everyone, especially my dad, because uh, the first 16 days, the water was around 42 degrees Fahrenheit. And so I was going into thrombosis or what we call deep core throttle uh, hypothermia. About every 45 minutes, uh, I would start to get really slow. My speech would start to slur, but the thing that helped me to know I needed to get out is I could feel my internal organs start to bang and shudder against my rib cage. And that's when you know it's starting to get pretty serious. And so after 45 minutes of swimming in this desperately cold water, I'd have to get on the riverbank and do jumping jacks and run in place and do burpees until I'd warmed up. Then I'd eat a little bit and I'd get back in and do it again. At this time, I was going to a world class oncologist and he thought it would probably kill me. I didn't think it would kill me, but I thought it would greatly compromise my health. And so we had chemo and radiation scheduled for right after the swim. And uh, that's when I got through the swim, had this wonderful 22 days in the water. Uh, I didn't know anything about something called the Blue Mind. Uh, It's from Wallace J. Nichols. He's a marine biologist. And he found that when you're in, on, around, or by, or even underwater, you hit a flow state. The brain, doesn't matter age, race, gender, the brain hits a flow state or at least a a relaxed meditative state within about two minutes. Well, I was spending eight to 10 hours a day in the water going with the current and just flowing around bends and around rocks and trees and past eagles and many times in the sunshine, sometimes in the driving rain. But I was part of this wild natural thing and it really eased and helped heal my uh, trauma as well. When I started the swim, June 3rd of 2014, I couldn't even say my wife's name, Mary, without choking up. And when we got done, we're having this big family celebration. And I'm telling funny stories about Mary because she was hilarious. And everybody was laughing. And then they all got quiet. And I said, what? And they said, you haven't said her name or said anything about her for four years without crying or choking up. And here you've just said all these things. And I said, oh, yeah, I guess so. I said, what's happened? I said, I don't know. But I found out that being, having my body and mind in that natural state, that flow state for 22 days really helped heal the trauma. Plus the cold water, you know, as you know, cold water immersion, that hypothermic state you get massive dumps of serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine and oxytocin. So I was constantly getting flooded with those things too, which were extremely helpful.
2: With finishing the swim, your family, they say, okay, it's time to time to park this thing you've done, right? You've had your fun. Now time to go get some chemotherapy and radiotherapy, all that, am I correct in saying?
1: All
0: right yeah, and so, so I went what, and took what the, happened? I went and took a blood test, and I flew down to university of uh san diego University of california san Diego, and it's uh where one of the world's top uh chronic lymphocytic leukemia researchers and doctors uh who was my doctor, I was lucky enough to have him just a wonderful, beautiful man uh <clears throat> Dr. Juanario Castro, a little Cuban guy, and he came in and I'd waited for almost an hour and a half just in this examination room uh, and scared to death that I was going to be given a death sentence and going to have to start chemo maybe even that day or the next. And he said, "I I don't know how to tell you this. Well, I'd heard doctors say that several times in the last five to seven years. Usually, it was absolutely horrible news, and so I immediately gasped, and he looked up at me. He said, oh, no, Dean, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. I don't know how to tell you this, but I can't find any hint of the leukemia at all, and in my 30 years, I've never seen this happen, and if I hadn't diagnosed you myself, I would have thought you'd been misdiagnosed. And just like the first time I was told that I had it, when I was told I didn't, I just went into this state of shock. I I kept asking him, could you tell me that again? I I don't quite understand. And he was really patient with me. But, yeah, uh, the
1: leukemia was gone because of this one. Unbelievable. I mean, I have so many questions. um,
2: Which I was... Waiting to dive into because I wanted to get set the stage for so everyone's on the same page for the listeners um remarkable story and if people want to relive the story as best you can, I, I do recommend the book the wild cure um which is Dean recalling the actual the, the actual swim and it's a fantastic book I'd really recommend it um radical remission what do you attribute to your recovery your your um getting over? the cancer?
0: Fundamentally, I believe, and this is, I found not a real popular belief system when I've told others this. Fundamentally, I think it was shifting my purpose, finding a passionate purpose, going after a dream. I believe all of us innately and instinctively are born with a dream. And your dream, Ben, isn't my dream. I believe each of us have a very unique and very highly specific, almost calling, if you will. And like you were alluding to earlier, Ben, there are snippets and almost previews in our childhood. I've had the fortunate experience over the last 10 years of because when people hear my story, they ask me to coach them. And help them find their purpose. And what I always do is I take them back to their childhood. Just like you were talking. What was your dream then? And what kinds of things did you do as a child? Maybe even a young adult. That really lit your heart on fire. And got you excited about life. Those are usually glimmers to the big dream. And the big purpose. And when you follow that dream. As hard as that is, because there is a a time, usually a big dream starts out with some fanfare, but then there's this huge stretch I call the desert of big dreams, where nobody cares. You're all alone. You're too far into it to go back, but you're too far in. You're not far enough into it to see any light at the end of the tunnel or any end to this thing, and you don't know it's going to turn out well. And you wondered why you were crazy enough to even start. And so there's that hard portion. But if you move through that and have the courage to persist and persevere, I believe you meet the people you need to meet, you do the things you need to do, and you become the person you were meant to be. And by being natural, it puts us in a natural state and puts us in a healing modality, both mind and body, and I believe spirit. To me, being called to the water, I mean, this is 2013 when I start this. I'd never heard of Wim Hof. Nobody that I know of was doing cold water immersion. I'd never heard of Wallace J. Nichols or Blue Mind or Clinton Ober and grounding or earthing. I'd never heard any of that. I was just trying to stay alive and have a purpose and then ultimately inspire other cancer patients to refuse to give up. That's all I was doing. To me, the river was nothing more than kind of a blue highway that I was going to travel down. But within about six or seven days, this river started to take life and I started becoming so connected to it. Now, I don't look at creation and nature At all, like I did before. Before the swim, I saw myself as kind of a dominant force in the world, and nature was to be used either as a playground or a resource. Now, I see rivers, trees, mountains, hills, lakes as equal but opposite beings that are here on Earth. Um... They don't look like me, they don't act like me, but I'm quite sure they're just as smart as me. They've got an intelligence all their own and a life force that we don't know much about yet. But I see myself as just one of many equal beings here on this planet.
2: There's this, uh, there's this nice line by a chap called Joseph Tussman who was a educator at Berkeley and in a book called experiments, he wrote, there's a nice line, which is a slightly adapted line, but it says, if you can identify and align with how the world really works and I align with its realities, the world will do the world will do most of the work for you. And what you just said perfectly aligns with that. It's, you're not at odds with nature. You're, you're aligned with how it works. You're part of it. You're not superior or inferior. You're just one of many different networks and, and uh, connections involved. And I think as I get older, I think I definitely have a more of a pull towards nature. Um, which perfectly segues into my next question, which was your leukemia was cured after the swim. You still right. had the lymphoma, if I'm correct in saying? Yeah. How did you go about curing or uh, treating the lymphoma?
0: Yeah, my doctor and I thought the lymphoma would just kind of dry up now that the leukemia wasn't there to decimate my immune system. But we were both sadly surprised to find it did the exact opposite. It started becoming very aggressive. My My lymph nodes just started swelling up just gigantically. I started noticing more lymph nodes. And so I went down and saw him again. And, uh, of course, he wanted to put me on chemo and radiation again. But I had been so changed in the way I saw the world, and I had been so overwhelmed and grateful for how nature had healed me and convinced that nature has the answers if we just know how to connect with it, unlock its power, that I started reading just searching how nature could boost my immune system. And I ran into the research from Nippon University in Tokyo uh, from a doctor named King Lee. And he, uh, he started this whole thing now that many of us know of as forest bathing. And he found that even an hour or two will boost... The NK or natural killer cells, these are the cancer-killing cells in the body, it'll boost the NK cells two to 300 times for two weeks, just an hour in a forest. If you're breathing in, especially conifer forest, pine or fir forest, you're breathing in something called phytoncides. These are natural essential oils that are emitted from trees that are largely imperceptible, but boost the immune system in gigantic ways. And so I'd gotten really excited about this. So I went down and he's like, Dean, we got to start chemo and radiation. I said, well, do we have to? Because I'd like to try one more thing. He just kind of rolled his eyes like, oh, here we go again. He's like, are you swimming another river? And I said, well, no, not right away. But what I'd like to do, I've read about this thing called forest bathing. Have you read about it? And he's like, yeah. He's like, "The research is inconclusive. And I'm like, it doesn't look inconclusive. And I live really close to this gigantic, wonderful, very wild forest, only about 45 minutes away. What I'd like to do is the research, and I, I printed it out. I said, it says that it boosts the NK cells if you're only out an hour or two. What I'm going to do is I'm going to backpack in every Thursday night after work, stay out all night, and then all day Friday, come back in Friday night. And it says it boosts it for two weeks. So if I do it every week, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but that should become exponential. And pretty soon I'm I'm healed. He's like, oh, my gosh. He's like, well, it's a lot more complicated than that. I said, I'm sure it is. I I, he said, well, how long do you want to do this experiment? I said, could we give it six months? And he said, yes. But I'd like you to take more frequent blood tests. And I said, I'll do that. I can do that. And he said, and if it gets to this level, you'll do chemo and radiation. I said, yeah, I will. Well, I started doing this, and within only weeks, uh, my blood count started going massively in the right direction. And the other thing I learned is I would walk down the same path and then I found a spot way in an old growth forest way off about half a mile to a mile off the path where the trees did what I call haven't seen humans for a long time. And I would take my backpacking hammock out there and just sling it a cup, around a couple of these gigantic cedar trees and just sit and breathe. And what I found being so isolated and so alone in the forest, all of a sudden my body started to decompress and I really started to give myself over to the grief and allow myself to cry, not just try to clamp down and hold it in and be a man, so to speak. And so I would many times fall asleep at about 10 or 11 at night, wake up about 1 just crying. But rather than try to stop it, just allow myself to cry till 2 or 3 or 4, fall back to sleep, sleep till sunrise, watch the sun come up over the mountains. And then at about 9 or 10 a.m., I would get into a glacier-fed stream only about a mile and a half from the original glacier. So I'm getting all of these ancient minerals uh, coming through this this water. And it was extremely cold because it's right out of a glacier. And I would walk out of there feeling like a million bucks. And I started that May of 2015. All my numbers kept going in the right direction. By March of 2016, my lymphoma was gone.
1: There's so many different things to say on that. (laughs) My initial
2: reaction is, the um one of my heroes, a guy called Charlie Munger, who recently passed away, he coined this term, the Lollapalooza effect, which is uh lots of small things working in the same direction lead to an exponential result. So, for example, a uh, a plane taking off is a result of a Lollapalooza effect. A hurricane is a result of a Lollapalooza effect. Most extreme excesses or successes or outliers, are, if you study them, there are confluence of multiple factors. Working in the same direction from the cold and your swim, and then getting out of the water to exercise, and then being exposed to nature and grounding, and then the forest bathing. Like, there's six or seven proposed mechanisms that could fight cancer alone. I mean, okay. So, you've seen, you've had a perspective of being a therapist for so many, being a coach right. for so many. Right. You've had. Um, spent a lot of time with your own consciousness and your own, oh. I guess, unconscious through meditation or black mm-hmm. Um You've overcome cancer multiple times and you have sadly lost your wife. You, you've, right. you've seen a lot of grief and you've been through a lot of grief yourself. Where does cold exposure fit into mental health, like grief, depression, anxiety? Does it have a place in that realm?
0: Well, it never did before and I am thrilled to see the research that's being promoted by Wim Hof and others uh, now because always I took my first real ice bath almost 11 years ago now. I knew I had to prepare my body. I've never heard of anybody taking an ice bath other than after a a long football game or after a marathon, a triathlon, you know, you sit in for about 20 minutes or something, but it, usually the water was about 50 and we'd be like, Ooh, it's so cold. And, uh, I'd never really seen or heard of anybody doing it, but I knew the Willamette is largely a snow melt river and I knew it was going to be cold and so I wanted to slowly acclimatize my body to it because I'm still sick. I I knew that it was going to be quite a test. And so January of 2013, I got in my first ice bath and I, it was only about 42 degrees, but it felt like I was, you know, getting in 20 or something. And because it felt shockingly bone-breakingly cold, and I stayed for about two minutes. And when I got out, I was shocked to find – I'm sorry, it was January 2014. I was shocked to find that – I called it my 1,000 pounds. Ever since my wife was diagnosed, my heart was heavy. I felt like I had a 1,000 pounds resting on my chest. I just couldn't breathe. And when I talked to my father and my best friend, the ones that I'd let them see the interior of my life and what was actually going on, they knew when I referred to my 1,000 pounds, it was this terrible torment that I was holding. Well, I got out. I thought, something's different. What's going on? My 1,000 pounds is gone. I can't feel it. And I thought the only thing that's different is I got in the ice water, but surely it couldn't have been that easy. You know, I'm a, I'm a therapist. It's supposed to take cognitive behavioral therapeutic methods or something. I, I should have to do some kind of hard work to, to get free, but I didn't do anything but get my butt in the water. And so I waited About two or three hours later, it started to sink back in, started to feel it again. So I thought, could it be that easy? So I got back in the ice bath, boom, gone again. And it was such a relief to know that if I needed a moment of respite, if I needed just a break from that torment, all I had to do is get in the ice water. It's the only thing that I found that has worked 100% of the time for 100% of the people. Um, And because of the research, just right before the pandemic, I started telling people because the research was out. And I've had people with lifelong persistent anxiety, people with depression, people that had been on antidepressants for over 30 years, uh, started daily ice bath routine, and it was hard. But it worked, and if they could just stay with it two or three weeks, they kind of became addicted to it, how good they felt afterwards. And all of the people that I've worked with that have been on antidepressants, not that I'm against them, um, but I, I hate to say all, but I think it's all. If they stayed with it for longer than six months, they started working with their doctor to titrate off of it. But I've had huge things happen with my clients who have chronic illnesses. Uh, I had one that was on disability who's only 42, and he'd been a real athlete, but he had Crohn's disease. And then that had uh, built into rheumatoid arthritis as well. He could hardly, he had to walk with a cane, couldn't walk upstairs, uh, couldn't do his job anymore. So he was sitting at home, uh, had to be very careful what he ate because with Crohn's, it'll just go right through you if you're not careful. And he, that was limiting where he could go and where he could be. He was not enjoying life or having any fun. Within four weeks, the rheumatoid arthritis was gone his cane was in the corner. Within two months, I think it was week eight or nine, he came in. And he's like, "I just went to the doc. They're having a hard time finding any of the markers of Crohn's disease." He's like, "I don't know if it's even ethical for me to be on disability anymore." Um, and you know, it's just, it's just as close to a miracle cure as anything I've ever found.
2: Amazing. I know someone who's been hit with rheumatoid arthritis pretty bad and i can't wait to share this with them um yeah 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 fascinating i mean helping people feels good right the uh we've eloise and i have suddenly started to probably the last let's say month and a bit daily ice bath cold exposure swimming we always did maybe once a week things like this but when you make it a daily practice i mean even it's been i don't know again like i said a a month for us and it's it's ridiculous how many how much it's benefiting my, my life personally i'm um, actually from our chat before you said i oh, sometimes go one two maybe three times a day i was like oh god better up it so sometimes i go in the morning and then i go at lunch and oh, they're me. the best days 100 yeah. percent. yeah so good so good dean you have this lovely um you have a lovely take on zeroing out yeah i love how do you t- tell us about zeroing out because i really enjoyed it when you and it's Eloise, really
0: man. my own mishmash of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy, mindfulness, Christian mysticism. It's 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 kind of all morphed into one thing. Plus, the latest in neuropsych. I sh- I shouldn't say the latest in neuropsychology because really, neuropsychology bur- burgeoned in the early two thousands, and right around two thousand seven they totally shifted in how they looked at the emotional system. And I couldn't really explain it to any of my clients. And so I was meditating and just asking for an answer way back then, how could I start helping others to see what the emotional system really looks like? And it hit me, the emotional, what they're saying now and how they look at the emotional system is the emotional system works just like the digestive system. You chew up life's experiences, that's exactly what you need to be healthy, growing strong, but there are a lot of waste products. Those waste products are anger, sadness, fear, hurt, loneliness, guilt, and shame, or derivatives or combinations of that. And your body, just like your urine and feces, will signal you when it's time to let those go, but we don't know what to do. And they're so intense, particularly as we hold on, that we give them meaning they definitely don't need or deserve to have. I mean, think about it. If we didn't know about the digestive system and all of a sudden we started, you know, leaking everywhere, uh, we'd be really confused and assign that meaning, start blaming each other for it or whatever, which is what we do with our emotions. And so for years, even before I got sick, I trained myself to look at uh, the hard or more difficult emotions as simply nothing more than psychological urine and feces. So I'd treat it the same way I do uh, my digestive system. When my body would signal me, I'd make a note of it. As soon as was appropriate, I'd go and get alone, mostly with meditative techniques. I'd allow my body to feel it. And then I would allow my body to let it go, my mind and my body. And what I'm letting go of is not what I would have done or should have done or could have done or what caused it or what I'm going to do about it. I'm just letting the emotion release, that toxicity release from my mind and body and spirit. And if you give it permission to release, it'll do it fairly easily fairly quickly, but we don't know to give it permission. I say almost all of us need emotional potty training. <laughs> we need we need to be taught, number one, not to give it more meaning than it, it deserves. And number two, part of our self-regulation is uh, knowing how to manage it. Uh, manage it. It's self-management. By getting alone, letting it release, getting practiced at it, finding Ben's way to release. It's not going to be exactly the same, not going to feel the same as Dean. Your body knows exactly how to release. And it did so until it was taught not to. There, I tell everybody, there's no such thing as a stressed out two-year-old. okay? <laughs> because they're upset. They'll cry, they'll scream, they'll hit things. Those are the three big ways the body and mind are designed to release. And many times, the psychologists have watched them closely enough, they'll stop, they'll take a few big sighs, which is the body's natural knee-jerk reaction to stress, relieving stress, or they'll have an involuntary shudder. Uh, They literally will, their nervous system will shake it off and then they'll go about their, their day happy. Well, we still have the ability to do that. Most of us can just do it by choice and then by breathing it out, taking big, deep diaphragmatic breaths and imagining that we're breathing, letting all of that release. And you keep with it, you'll notice it'll go from a, on a scale of zero to 10, from a seven or an eight down to a zero or one very quickly. And so in 2013, when I decided I needed to live and I was having very disordered sleep, knowing what I know about the unconscious mind, I was having three to five nightmares a night. Well, that's disordered sleep. The One of the main theories as to why we dream is it's our unconscious mind trying to resolve the most intense emotion we had that day. Well, I mean, it doesn't take a brilliant chemist to figure out if you take nothing into sleep, the brain has nothing negative to focus on. If you take a lot of negative things into sleep, it will focus on it. And whatever we focus on grows. And then you wake up even more burdened because it's grown, that stress and whatever it is you experienced while you were asleep. And I believe most of us are living lives of quiet desperation where we're dragging not years but decades of junk, heartache, discouragement, despair, torment. Into our day, and then wondering why we're not functioning or s- well, or very successful, or very energetic, or very happy, or very healthy. Well, I mean, you wouldn't. And so I made an absolute commitment, just like brushing my teeth at night. I'm going to brush my heart and mind clean. I'm going to, before I allow myself to go to sleep, I'm going to review my day just that day. I'm not going to even go farther past. Than just the day, because when I, I don't want to be vulgar on your podcast, but when I pee, I'm not peeing from weeks ago. I'm just peeing from what what I've ingested probably the last 24 hours. And so I stay that way with my emotions. I think about my day, I watch my body, notice if it tightens up. If it tightens up, I ask my body what's the emotion that's causing this restriction, this tension it'll tell me. And then I'll be like, Oh yeah, I talked to this guy and he was really angry and And so then rather than let go of what I'm going to do for that situation, I just let go of the feeling. And I keep doing that until I can get through my whole day and there's just nothing. And on the odd day that I've got what I call a sticky emotion I'll keep a journal by my bedside and make make a, a. bargain with my subconscious. If my body's just not letting it go, I'll write down the emotion. And I'll say, "Okay, it's written down." I'll pick it back up at eight a.m. I'll deal with it then. Will you let it go? And it always says yes. Um, sometimes, like, well, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote it down. <laughs> and so- and by zeroing out Ben. Uh, almost immediately, I went from three to five nightmares a night to one, sometimes two. Within about uh, two weeks, I woke up happy, which really confused me because I had no right to be happy. And my life was in turmoil. Um, within about uh, two or three months, I was standing in a grocery store And there were about 60 of us or so waiting. And I looked around and caught the eye of some four or five-year-olds. And we were making faces at each other, having a lot of fun. And then I realized, oh, the reason they picked me is I'm the only adult here that's alive. All the rest of them are what I call sleepwalking or walking zombies. They all had their head down or just staring blankly. None of them were there. And I think it's because they were carrying too much into their day. And then two or three years after I started doing this, um, my coworkers and my family started complaining that I'm annoyingly happy all the time. Um, I'm like, well, you know, if, if you're going to gripe about something, go ahead and gripe about that. Uh, and I, as I've taken people through that process of learning their way of zeroing out, um, it, it falls about the same, uh, calendar event, uh, within about two or three days, they wake up happy, um, sometimes two weeks, uh, within about two months, they start noticing they're awake and alive and have energy, but most people around them don't. And within about two or three years, they start having people around them complain that they're annoyingly happy. That's yeah,
2: Nice goal to have. Yeah. So very nice is. to have.
0: It what, is. What
2: what questions would you give to people who want to start their own process of zeroing out and trying to figure out what that practice looks like for them?
0: Yeah. Um the first thing they need to do is uh there, there are basically four steps. Uh the first one is feeling. A lot of people want release, but they don't want to have to feel their feelings. Well, that's as silly as trying to go to the bathroom before your bladder is signaled to you. No, you never do that. Y- you wait till you're, blo- till you're feeling it in your bladder. Um, and so what you want to do is stimulate that body's response by allowing yourself to feel. And so if you know that it something happened, but you've kind of stuffed it, I have people welcome it until they're up to about a six so that they're really feeling it and that body's ready to release. And it opens that unlocking mechanism Um, that won't open if you're not really feeling. Uh, You got to feel and release. That's the human way. And the release doesn't happen unless you feel first. And that takes a bit of courage, especially at first. Once you learn, though, uh, you don't even think about it. And it makes you very um, emotionally resilient to be able to feel. Because no matter how deep you're feeling or how much you're overwhelmed, you know you can get rid of it. And you know how your body does that. So the first one's feeling. The second one is what I call flowing. That's where you just let all this emotion flow out of you. And you stay with it patient, patiently and encourage it as it releases. You let it flow until it's just not there. And then you might do that several times. And then here's how my process is very, very, very different except for the ancient mystics. And that I believe when we release, we create a vacuum nature abhors a vacuum. And I only learned this by being out in nature so much of my life. And so I think a lot of people that have great anxiety, they might feel a bit of release, but then they don't fill that spot with anything. And so all that anxiety sweeps right back in, maybe even more so. And so what I have my clients do after they've released everything is notice where they feel real empty and good and clean and clear and invite something into that. Something, because if there are waste products, there are also emotional, what I call, nutrients or vitamins. And those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, hope. Whatever good thing you want to fill with and you feel would help you most, welcome it. And breathe that in and breathe that into that spot, fill that spot. And once you learn that you have the power to fill yourself with those good things, and it's not dependent on circumstance, man, that's when you start feeling superhuman. And then the fourth is feedback. Um, And this fourth thing I just added in the last year. It helps develop emotional maturity and emotional intelligence if you start to watch which of these waste products are coming up the most. Oh, man, I really deal with a lot of anger. Or, wow, I didn't realize I was scared all the time. And then you start asking yourself, what am I thinking or how What kinds of questions am I asking myself that makes it makes me stay there? Or even better yet, what is life and this constant waste product encouraging me to learn? Where do I got to get and what do I have to leap to in order to not deal with this all the time? What is this teaching me? And so the fourth one's feedback. So it's, Feeling, flowing, filling, feedback. Um, that's my zeroing out process.
2: Well, I, I'm pleased I asked, and thanks for thanks for giving <laughs> us a sneak peek. It's it, it's really a interesting. A little
0: bit of a rant
2: there. <laughs> no, rant tangent. They're welcome here. This is this is the place. The um, <clears throat> there's a a line again. You Just you're talking. I'm just things popping in my head, and the line goes from a book called power versus force but david hawkins mm-hmm. have, you heard, have you heard of it yeah, yeah, yeah. when the it, it's a lovely book great book and i think you embody a lot of uh what's said in that book in, oh. in a favorable way in a nice way wow. um well, thank but you. it says uh when the inner work is great the outer work is never small and you're someone who's done so much inner work a lot by your own volition it seems but also by circumstance and sort of necessity right. um so i think you're uniquely qualified to be in a place to um give a lot of like share your wisdom essentially and i think it's um it's a wonderful thing to be able to do um dean with the we mentioned grounding a little bit and i i, mm-hmm. I wanted to touch on this because i think in 2015 2014 if you spoke about grounding to your average person who's kind of interested in the health they would have They would have shunned it. They'd be like, that's okay, go hug a tree, all this. The science has caught up with grounding and actually it's sort of quite hard to ignore. And I think that's the sort of trend with a lot of the ancestral wisdom that the science has caught up and is actually justifying, okay, here's a scientist, credible academic is saying why and giving you a clear why to do it. And I think a lot of things you've touched on today are sort of at the forefront of that. I know you mentioned elements of earth, fire, wind and water. Could you just touch to that ancestral wisdom of like where do you think that's going? I know you mentioned cold. If you talked to grounding and just some of the, the highlights there would be really beneficial.
0: Yeah, I again <clears throat> the way we are taught to look at ourselves as um lords of the universe and um the captains of creation, is just monumentally flawed. Uh, It's so egotistical and egocentric, it's ridiculous. And it's one part of our culture that makes me blanch a bit uh, because you look at the indigenous folks, and even when our cultures were indigenous, they were very very nature-centered, and uh, they watched the seasons, and they watched the stars, and other um, living entities on Earth had an equality to them. And they didn't look at nature as a playground, because they were still doing a lot of their Whatever they had to do just to survive, and they didn't look at as as look at it as just a resource. Well, I'm going to take take take. No, they they tried to live in harmony, and they saw wisdom in trees and gave trees an equal um, position in the circle and cycle of creation and of nature. And I think the more we study, the more we realize that we are all connected as humans with not only each other, but other biological forms. We are all connected biologically. And then we are all connected with anything on Earth chemically. I mean, the old ashes to ashes, dust to dust (laughs) Uh, What we don't realize is we are animated lumps of clay. We are made from the matter of earth. And yet we try to think of ourselves as something separate from it because we've been taught to. But we're not. Um, And then what we don't realize is if you expand that view even farther, we are connected to everything in the universe. Atomically, um, our atoms vibrate and recognize other things, maybe I don't know how far out. Um, One of my favorite studies that was done about 10 years ago is they were uh, studying people's brain waves and they noticed some odd blips and they couldn't make sense of it. Maybe the machine uh, had some anomalies. And then they realized they had to get friends and family members out of the room and at least more than 20 feet away. Because if they didn't, what they noticed is these odd blips. If someone you love and are really connected to is within 20 feet of you, their heartbeat registers in your brainwaves. We are all much more vibrationally connected and I would not as a clinician there is no way I would have said that sentence even 10 years ago but now science has become so sophisticated they know that we are very electronic um vibrational beings and they are able to measure our emotions and the vibrational frequency of each one of those emotions from the very highest vibration to the very lowest vibration, and the highest vibration I thought was love, but it's joy and then love, and then peace, and you go on down, and then you start getting into some of the uh, really hard, difficult emotions. The very lowest vibration is shame, and sadly, a lot of the uh religious organizations fuel shame. Uh, There's a lot of shoulds and a lot of those kinds of things happening that don't need to happen and fueling that lowest vibrational frequency. So uh, to answer your question, it's really important that we learn that uh, we break this blindness this short-sightedness, that we are isolated, that we are an island, that we are an entity unto ourselves, because we're not that at all. We are exact opposite. We are connected to everyone and everything much more deeply than we would ever realize.
2: The uh, amazing... um amazing book power versus force is a book i first read and thought this is probably one of the worst books i've ever read in my life <laughs> i was like this is complete mumbo jumbo i don't yeah. get it i don't want to get it it's next and i reread it at the beginning of 2021 first time 2017 then i reread it beginning 21 for some reason just kind of picks up on the bookshelf i thought oh i'll try this again and it was one of the most profound books i've ever read in my life and wow. i think and i think it, it, it is consistent with what you would you were you were talking about um um, the last question for you which is our favorite here what is the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you
0: that's a great question because i've had so many wonderful acts of kindness uh one of the kindest things i was just thinking about this uh one of the most brilliant men i know and he blanched at me saying that, is a fifth-generation Oregonian. Uh, He's the head of the environmental group called Willamette River Keepers. And I walked into his office, you know, never having swum a river before, uh, 53 years old at that time. I still looked awful. I, I tried to look as presentable as I could and told him that I was going to swim the entire length of the Willamette River. And not only did he not throw me out of his office, he um, is also a cartographer, a map maker, and he had drawn a very detailed, really the only really detailed map of the entire river. He knew it backwards and forwards, and he elicited everything, He recruited everybody he could to help me. And uh, lo and behold, I didn't know it. But my parents had made a commitment spiritually (laughs) in prayer. Uh, They're Christians. I don't usually tell people they're Christians because that conjures up some kind of wild conservative thing. They're very loving, quiet, deeply uh, people of deep faith. Uh, They don't act like uh, normal people you'd see on TV. But they had been praying, and they were asking God for a sign. And as silly as this sounds, uh, but in their lives, that meant something. It was very authentic. I didn't know any of this was going on. And they had prayed that if God would lead somebody to help me, that then they would give all their help to me as well. If not, within that week, they were going to do everything they could to stop me. And because they thought I was had some kind of uh, um, death wish. And lo and behold, on Thursday of that week, and they were going till Sunday, <laughs> Thursday of that week, I met Travis. He gave me the map, he told me he'd try to recruit uh guide boaters, he'd put me in touch with a couple men that had been on the river most of their lives, and those men I actually got to meet and they spent the first six days on the river with us, Alan Lou. And uh he would he gave me a book that he'd written about the Willamette that helped us break down exactly Uh, where we could put in and take out every day. And he didn't have to do any of that. And looking back, if I would have walked into my office, this guy's a busy guy. Um, I don't know that I would have taken. He gave me an hour and a half that first day. Uh, And I didn't have an appointment. And he gave me his book and his map and promised me to help do whatever I needed to do. And that one act of kindness then led my parents to feeling like life was saying, okay, we need to throw all our chips in with Dean too. And so it was just this beautiful cascading effect. So it was was just an inherent act of kindness that was life-changing. And and I don't know if I'd be alive today if it hadn't been for that one act.
2: What a guy. What a guy. Dean. I could speak to you all day and, you know, I hope we very much meet in person one day. That'd be uh, where can we find you, Dean?
0: Yeah, I am very, very active on Instagram uh, at Dean Hall official. And uh, as part of my uh, discipline of kindness and gratitude, I I promise myself that no matter how many followers I got, that if you DM me, I'm going to DM you back. That's now become a full-time job. With, <laughs> I'm up to almost, well, I turn 93K today followers. And and so I get probably 20 or 30 DMs a day at least. And I answer all of them. Um, and so if you uh, approach me in my DM, if you end up in my DMs, I'm going to answer you. Uh, but I try to answer every comment on my post too um so i'm very active there if you if you contact me there you're going to get an answer uh and then also uh my website the wild cure way has a place where you can contact me and and that'll get my attention right away as well
2: well dean thank you so much i really appreciate your time i appreciate message i appreciate you
0: well ben uh I'm a real, real big fan of what you're doing and what you're promoting and just who you are and the way that you're so generous at yourself and and what you're trying to promote and how you're following your own dream. So anything I can do, I'm happy to support.
2: Thank you so much, Dean.
0: Thank you.